everybody. It's Ian King, King Sports International, and in our huddle today, we're having a chat with someone who I've been looking at uh, their work for many decades now, and I'm sure vice versa, and we're having an opportunity to sit down and have a chat. So, Hank, uh, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you loud and clear, uh, Ian. Excellent. Well, you know, the, good thing about, the good thing about you and I chatting is that we've both got pretty weird accents, and so no one can complain. We're both pretty hard to understand. Really? I never heard uh, that one. I need to be done. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, Hank, we're going to go on a bit of a journey, but let's start at the very beginning. I mean, first of all, um, where did your involvement in sport all begin? Um, considering my age a long time ago, uh, probably uh, too long ago, um, uh, I didn't like sports at all, to be honest. Uh, I didn't want to do sports ever in my life, but my, I developed a scoliosis when I was uh, 14 years old and my mother told me to do sports. I went to um, the track, but I found out that track and field wasn't really my cup of tea. So I, uh, I uh, went back home and I thought, well, this is not, not it. And, uh, but she was very persistent and uh, she tricked me into do track and field. Uh, uh, of course, I wanted to run the 100 meters, which is still the coolest event there is, running 100 meters. Look at the Olympic Games. It's the most uh, televised uh, event and most broadcasted event in, in, uh, on the planet. <clears throat> but um, considering my length, I'm uh, six foot six. I started off as a high jumper. <clears throat> Not that I could jump, but I was so tall that I kind of stumbled over the bar and people started to, 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 to be enthusiastic about it because nobody else uh, stumbled over the bar. Basically, because they were all five feet tall. And um, well, that's how it started. And I got a, a taste of a track and field. I 18, 19 years old. I run the 100 meters in later on in 10, 5, 400 meters in 47, 4. Very, very mediocre times, but with my limited uh, talent, uh, it's still okay. And But I wasn't very happy with my coach, so I started reading books, uh, the classic East German translated Russian books, and, uh, and hey, there's a whole, whole world out there of which I'm not aware. And um, I started to do courses with the Czech and Field Federation, and uh, I finished all the courses within the shortest possible time, and uh, I was uh, the highest qualified coach in the, at that moment uh, with all the diplomas and all the licenses, but no intention to coach uh, anybody else uh, whatsoever. And then a year later, somebody twisted my arm, a coach who was moving to another city. And um, he twisted my arm and, and kind of forced me uh, in this way to coach his, uh, take over his club. And these kids did all very well. The Federation uh, uh, noticed this. And um, then I became a junior coach, a national coach for the juniors, uh, sprints, hurdles, and relay in 1981. So I was 26 years old. and. That's why the whole thing basically started. It's my uh, my end of uh, the start of my career, and not the end of it yet. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So let's talk about coach education. So you you underwent the track and field education. That was in the late seventies, early eighties. Yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, late seventies. Uh, with the Dutch, was that was that with your national federation, or was that a, a, a bigger organisation? No, no, it was just a national federation, which was. Uh, Okay, a small federation, not very uh, powerful. Of course, we had some uh, very good athletes, uh, like any small country can have a, a very good athlete once in a while. Think about Fanny Blanker's corner in 1948. 
uh, yeah, we had some athletes, but not really international level, and, and for sure not a, a whole lot of them. So to get a context of from uh, Holland's approach to coach education, how would you yeah. compare coach education in the 70s and, and, and then into the 80s that you experienced from, from the Dutch federations? How would you compare that to, say, other countries in Europe? Uh, I think it was very, very good because uh, in Holland, since we are a small country, we speak more languages than our own languages. Mainly we speak English, German, uh, French. Uh, some of us uh, speak, uh, quite a few people speak uh, Spanish because of the holidays. So that gives you access to uh, uh, books and articles and go to a conference or seminars uh, uh, abroad. So you pick up a lot more information if you speak uh, multiple languages. And um, that's our strength in, uh, in Holland. We were always uh, merchants, uh, 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 people selling stuff, not conquering other countries, but selling stuff. So we had to communicate and had to speak the other language. Nobody is going to speak Dutch, that's for sure. And um, our system was mainly based on a guy who was uh, equal like Frank Dick at that time and uh, who translated uh, the East German uh, books and articles for a larger audience in, uh, in Holland. So all the information mainly came from Germany and, and East Germany, and East Germany was uh, mainly Russian. That's the, that's the main source, was the main source of our information at that time. So the, the reason I ask is that what I'm seeing in the world at the moment, in the world of sport is being slowly um, engulfed by, shall we say, an, an Americanized viewpoint. Yeah. And 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 you and I know that information, some of the best education um, came from countries other than, and, and, and still, even that information still 50 years later is probably uh, superior in many ways to some of the things. And, and I, I just, I'm concerned for the future of physical training when, when we have our blinkers on and, and we, we just learn the American away and we don't understand um, the diverse influences. So, I mean, let's put it what percentage of your influence is coming out of America? Yeah, um, very interesting uh, topic. I talk about it uh, in, in, in seminars uh, quite a lot. About where does a coach get his information from? And uh, I, I uh, uh, really confirm the trend that you're seeing that a lot of information now is coming from uh, from the US. At that time, um, late 19. 70s, 1980s, there was already the, the, the influx of information from the US uh, to bodybuilding, you know, muscle and fitness, Joe Weider about hypertrophy of muscles. And uh, well, Americans are very good in, in selling uh, their concepts or ideas and their, their, their training systems. If they're really that good, you, you can doubt. And here's the funny thing look, coming from a third. Uh, party country like Holland, we are not Russian, we're not American. Well, the Americans always look for the Russian secret, the Bulgarian yeah. secret system, the Russian uh, recovery system or product. But uh, being in touch with the Russians and these Germans, they were always looking at America, what the Americans were doing. They weren't blind. They see. Uh, they saw that at the time, America was still a, a, a tremendous powerhouse in, in, in sport performance. So they were looking for the American secret. So it's funny. America looking for Russian secrets and the Russian looking for American secrets. Absolutely. And even to this day, if you mention the word Russian or 
um, similar synonym in front of a word that's relating to training, the Americans light up. They, you know, the, the, the suggestion that kettlebells might have originated in, in Russia or they may even have been a dominant training method in Russian strength training is enough to sell millions. Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, all these uh, things, and this is one of the, uh, let's say, tests of these time, young coaches think that, uh, that, uh, that uh, they have no respect for the, for the past. They don't look further back than what happened. If it's five years old, it's already old or old-fashioned or outdated or not valuable anymore. And yes. um, that's kind of stupid. Uh, I, uh, if you look back in, in history and when you get older, you, you tend to value history a little bit more than when you're younger, absolutely. Then you see that all things like kettlebell and all so-called new training systems, new concepts are fundamentally very old systems, just, uh, well, uh, repainted and uh, the, uh, and and resold in as as being new and improved, but basically it just isn't true. One example is uh, a recent example is uh, the v velocity based training. It's very popular in the US, but you know, uh, together with some colleagues, we we kind of designed this idea of velocity based training, or as we call it, power training, uh, in the 1990s, beginning of the 1990s, and we worked through it we knew everything about it and then we we didn't discard it but we we took this for granted and now all of a sudden i from the us come velocity based training a new system you have to look at the the velocity of the bar and everything so wow that's what we did 30 years ago but american young american coaches say hey this is a completely new development when in our eyes it's just something well old as a matter of fact it's one of the few examples that are recent examples yeah, great example, and, and the concept of of doing uh, an exercise of different velocities, you know, more than once in one week, and and come out with some um, incredibly new name for uh, for that, in, in, in as if it's a special periodization. I mean, you know, Olympic weightlifting have been using um, you know the same exercise at different velocities on different training days since you know Adam invented the barbell. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well. Yeah, you can think about it, but of course, this is not a, not an optimal way. People try to reinvent the wheel, try to uh, are enthusiastic over ideas that are long time ago, developed a long time ago, and start to develop it uh, themselves and give just give it a, a new name. But basically, there's not very much really creative or fundamentally innovative. Uh, Innovational, uh, innovative uh, ideas. Uh, there's just new apps for everything to measure everything, but that's not really an innovation. Yeah, absolutely. So, in the, in your travels, let's let's talk about um, physical qualities. Now, you know, b back in the Frank Dick times, um, you know, back in the, the and you know his influence originally from East Germany and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But back in the 70s, you might have heard the the English talking about the five S's: speed, strength, suppleness, stamina, etc. Um, yeah. You know, we, we we know Tudor Bomber's influence from Romania, sorry, from um, uh, sorry, the Romanian Eastern Eastern uh, European um, area, for example, recognises speed, strength, and of flexibility. Did did was there a different perspective in the eighties from 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 the Holland perspective? Mm -hmm. uh, no, not really. No, no, no. We we use the same thing: uh, uh, strength, endurance, speed, flexibility, and yeah, call it call it. Uh, well, we have a, say, a different one called coordination, but that's, that's such a vague term that you can do anything with the, with the term coordination. What is uh, very few people know how to define coordination uh, very well, and of course, it's always linked to 
to other physical qualities. It's very specific coordination. You can be a very good juggler, but a lousy uh, basketball player. So is your coordination good or bad? There's a nice book uh, written, and it's called Why Michael Couldn't Hit, about Michael Jordan, why he was an yeah. excellent, well, a very good basketball player, but as a baseball player, I wouldn't say he sucked. He was better than most of us uh, here, but he wasn't just that good. So did he have a good or bad coordination? He had a good coordination for basketball, probably the best coordination, but for baseball, his coordination just wasn't adequate. So that, that's, that's why we, we had many, um, um, we made a, a division of conditioning, and we made the strength, endurance, uh, speed, and flexibility. And then next to conditioning, we have, of course, the mental part, the, the technical part, and the technical part. And that's all Absolutely. It's it's yeah, it's well, obvious. It's obvious. Huh? Yeah, so very consistent across the Europeans as far as the athletic preparation, technical, tactical, psychological, physical, and then breaking the physical down is speed, strength, endurance, and flexibility. So the, the, what I wonder is how do we how do we help how do we help this generation and future generations rationalise that history with the American yeah. history? And in the American history, the way I see it, was there were strength coaches in the 60s and the 70s, and they started to influence, uh, say, American football and, and similar sports. They started yeah. an association in the Midwest uh, in 1978 called the National Strength Coaches Association. And three years later, they realized perhaps that the word uh, conditioning was completely missed out and they threw it in as an afterthought. They changed the word coach to conditioning and, and kept the acronym of NSCA. So for me, Americans are almost exclusively focusing on strength and everything else is an afterthought. So what, what from, you know, I, I, I got my influences from the same places you got your influences from, even though we come from different countries. And I was a bit shocked when I came to uh, when I came to learn that the Americans narrow approach. So how do we help the future generations understand that it's not strength and conditioning? It's it's a it's a range of athletic and physical qualities, and we treat them from a needs basis depending upon the athlete uh, sport or the athlete's needs. How, how do we how do we get that message across, or do we just give up and accept the Americans are going to dominate with the the word strength and an afterthought of conditioning? Well. For instance, like activities like this one, by, by just by education, see there's more. You see a, 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 a small but but uh, but clear trend nowadays to to look more at speed as a as a as a quality. But Americans, unfortunately, have the ten uh, the, the tendency to or uh, to exaggerate things, to focus on one point and make it really big. Well, that's a general yes. trend uh, of coaches anyway. They look for the magic secret and. In the 1960s and 70s, everything was around endurance and oxygen uptake and oxygen test. Oxygen uptake was the most important thing. Then yes. the East Germans came with lactic acid, and everything was lactic acid. Everybody, if you were shot footer or marathon, it doesn't really matter. Everybody yes. was measuring lactic acid, lactic threshold. Um, uh, so yeah, we, we, we like to uh, uh, focus on one thing and hope that this will cover everything. Uh, I hope that, that, that we can convince young coaches then that there's more behind uh, the horizon, and that's a whole spectrum or a rainbow of qualities that we need to to, to look at, and uh, that we need to improve, dependent on the athlete and dependent, of course, on, on the demands of the specific sport. So, if we look at the history of speed, the way that speed's been treated in American sport, yeah. if, if we if we look at, uh, for example, coach education in the NSA or similar, we find yeah. very little references to speed during the 1980s, as you as you as we both know, yeah. it was an it was a, it was a you know the 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 maximal oxygen uptake. It was so important. To, you know that's a different story. But there was so little reference to speed, and what what was there was pretty much like a poor imitation of a track and field, like a hundred meter sprint or two hundred meter sprint or four hundred meter sprint training program. Yeah. Now I, I do see the discussion in America 
um, you know, here we are in 2019. I do see more attention in, in, the, in the American environment to speed, but I still don't see that uh, it might have doubled. It might have gone from 2% of the yeah. attention to 4% of yeah. the attention. Yeah. But it's still out of context and it's still poorly treated. Now, that's just my perspective. And I come from, uh, I, you know, my, my background has been very diverse in, in helping athletes from such a diverse range of sports. Yeah. And therefore, I need to be uh, able to uh, approach speed in, in the way needed by the athletes. But how, how, how do you see more than I see in America? I, and I know they're embracing the speed discussion, but I'm still not convinced it's being done well or being fairly no. treated in, in, in the broader sense. No, absolutely true, and and this is kind of a uh, uh, funny. There's two two uh, remarks from my side here. Number one, who uh, who made uh, some impact on uh, on uh, on the on the on, on the essence of speed is of course uh, Charlie Francis. Charlie Francis is is still uh, um, well almost a mythical uh, person in in uh, also in American sports, uh, and uh, he was the one. Well, the speed guru. Let me say that he he was the one who. Who focused on speed and and of course uh, nobody can neglect the uh, results of Ben Johnson. Everybody knows about Ben Johnson about speed and well he was kind of a massive uh, guy with lots of muscles. So the memory oh well see muscles uh, big muscles hypertrophy. He was very strong speed everything. So at least something started to 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 click. And here's yes. a funny thing: no matter how Americans focus on strength, where the American weightlifter in the Olympics. I haven't seen him for a long time. American weightlifters are almost non-existent, and, and it used to be one of the highlights of American strength. You know, the Olympic lifting. But where's the uh, American Olympic lifter? Well, in sprints, for a long time, not anymore. Since uh, the, the Jamaicans, the Americans have been have been dominating uh, uh, Olympic sprinting. From from uh, Carl Lewis to Morris Green to well, you name it, uh, Marion Jones, uh, Tim Montgomery. Uh, now we have some new kids uh, coming up. They are, have always been predominantly, uh, uh, very dominant in, in, in sprints. And still, so you have the best sprinters in the world, but how they train doesn't seem to be that important if you want to make somebody faster. And now you have lousy weightlifters, Olympic weightlifters, and if you want to get faster, uh, you listen to the weightlifters and do Olympic lifting. That's kind of a, a paradox to me. Yes, yes, and the the gap that we're seeing uh, in in the speed uh, at the elite level. Yeah, it, I'll give you an example. In 1993, so what's that? 16 years ago, um, I spoke at a, 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 a Nike-sponsored event in in America, where they brought together the best speed minds, so to speak, uh, in, in that era, as far as how they were applying speed to sport. And it certainly gave me a bit of an interesting insight um, on the downside of the opportunities. Let's just say well, there was a lot of opportunity in American sport. So whatever they were doing in track and field, uh, whatever success they were experiencing in track and field wasn't necessarily transferring into uh, what I'd say the application to sports, um, a wide range of, of sports and that had a speed component in the American environment. Well, absolutely. The, 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 the thing is, you cannot transfer 100 meter running to any team sports because the demands of, of, of running at high speed are completely different. We have nobody, you don't have to focus on the ball. You're always all by yourself in that one lane. You don't have to catch or throw a ball or hit the ball in any any sense. Um, in 100 meters, there's never a turn. You have to, don't have to slow down. So 
it is called, there is a, some 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 difference in, in transfer, but there certainly points to learn from uh, from uh, pure uh, speech running. I'll give an example on that, Hank. I don't mean to but I'll give a great example on that. In sports that I work with, quite often they have to be watching the opposition. They, they have to be able, able to respond to what the opposition does. So yeah. putting your head down and looking at the ground, even for a fraction of a second, is pretty damaging in, in a lot of sports. And yet yeah. in track and field, you can get away with it because you know where you're going. You're, no one's going to yeah. come and hit you. Exactly. Um, that, that alone is, I mean, th there are so many aspects that I see in, even in great track and field training that are yeah. so inappropriate to certain sports because nobody's thinking, no one's saying, okay, that, that might work in track and field, but is yeah. that really good for my sport? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why in, in Europe, uh, uh, many, for instance, with soccer, soccer is still uh, and, and will be the most uh, popular sport in, uh, in uh, Europe. Many soccer oh, clubs, oh. Uh, they hire, yeah, they, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, many soccer co co uh, clubs, they hire a, a sprint coach, a track and field coach, and almost always they're doomed to fail because they don't understand the specific demands of, of the team sport. They transfer everything, everything is straightforward, everything is forward and never backwards or sideways. So uh, most of them are doomed to fail as far as progress is concerned. Uh, that's funny, yeah. So the tr track and field in my from uh, from the 1970s um, 1970s 1980s for me it was one of the most advanced sports in terms of sports science because of the ability to measure it's a sport that lends itself to measurement uh, yeah. and 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 I think there was so much good information um, some of the journals you were probably publishing some of them back in the back then um, new studies of athletics um, yeah. Yes, I think track and field was leading in sports science back then. Do you think it's still leading? I think yes, uh, for the simple reason that that all the advantages. Uh, it's uh, short. It's rather um, predictable. You only, if you want to do record something with biomechanic with biomechanics uh, equipment or with cameras, it only takes ten seconds. It doesn't take uh, like in soccer two times forty-five minutes. It's very static as far as that concerns. You know exactly where the sprint is going. And it's very simple to set up some cameras and uh, or to do the measurements on sprinting. Uh, uh, and there's a need for a track and field because the, the margin of improvement is so small. It's the oldest sports. It's the most uh, uh, global sports, as a matter of fact. You can find sprinters from any country, any continent, uh, even from Australia. Even you can find some uh, some good sprinters. So. <laughs> And from Holland too. <laughs> so uh, it's the oldest sport. It's the most uh, researched sport already, and it's such a simple sport. So you're looking for this this uh, famous uh, uh, expression for marginal gains. So we have to keep ahead. We have to look at uh, at the research, at the latest uh, technology and the latest research in in, in, in biomedical uh, in the biomedical field or in the in the brain science in the science field, uh, neuroscience field. To, to stay ahead of the rest. Uh, and, uh, so I, I think we will still uh, pump out a lot of uh, information in, as far as uh, sprinting is concerned. So in your career, you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of good coaches. Uh, you've, had, you've been able to learn from a lot of good coaches and a lot of good, um, we'll call them sports scientists, you know, people measuring things. So yeah. give us some of, the, some of the great people you've had the opportunity to spend time with and learn from. Well, one of one of my mentors uh, was the late uh, Carmelo Bosco. He's an Italian uh, sports scientist. Yes. Uh, 
most scientists are pretty uh, linear, rational, linear thinking, but Carmelo was uh, very innovative and creative. He came up with, well, the Bosco jump mat. Uh, so that the measure a battery, test battery, squat jump, counter movement jump, reactive jumps, drop jumps, you can measure everything. He came up with velocity-based training or power training, as he called it. And uh, he came up with hyper, the hypergravity system uh, by wearing a light 10 to 30% of your of your body weight weight vest and wearing it uh, three weeks at a time, uh, 16 hours a day. He came up with uh, the vibration platform, the vertical vibration platform was basically Carmelo Bosco's uh, uh, concept and design to apply to sports to improve uh, human performance. So I spent a lot of time uh, with him going to, uh, to uh, seminars, uh, spent time on the track, which was uh, excellent. And well, he's, uh, I can still consider him one of the main uh, influences on, on my way of thinking about uh, uh, sports and performance. Another one was, um, or still is, uh, Per Tesh, a brilliant sports scientist from uh, from uh, Sweden. Uh, if you look up the name Per Tesh, you see he published hundreds of articles and he's a keen athlete himself, uh, he did bodybuilding. Well, he put athletes in an MRI machine before and after uh, uh, performing exercise to see which muscles really were activated. He wrote a book about it uh, as well. He is the designer of the uh, yo-yo system, the, uh, the flywheel system. He designed it, uh, this thing. Now, there's many copycats, especially in the US, but he was the one who designed this, uh, this, uh, this system. Uh, another one is uh, one of my uh, good friends is uh, Bill Leich. He is uh, a doctor. He was a plastic surgeon, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. He has a PhD about uh, um, muscle fiber changes in fast or slow training in, in 1984, 85. Uh, he's now a psychiatrist. So uh, a guy who covers a wide scope of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, fields. And uh, with him, we did the muscle biopsies on elite athletes like Nelly Kuhlman, at the time world record holder and two times world champion in the 60 meters, or Malinotti. So we learned a lot from taking biopsies, looking at uh, muscle fiber composition and the changes uh, by, uh, by training. And uh, amongst other things uh, that we uh, did. So Bill Life always has been a great support for my uh, scientific uh, way of thinking. I'm not a scientist, so, well, you have to have some rational and logical thinking instead of just uh, trial and error and, and, and or try to reinvent the wheel. So these are the main main scientists that I uh, work with. Further, I learned a lot from as a coach from uh, from uh, Charlie Francis, since our athletes were always competing uh, together. So we travel together, sit in hotel rooms, sit in the lobby, eat in the same restaurant, sit in the same bus and the same plane. So we talked and talked and talked. Uh, uh, so he has been uh, an influence for me as uh, as uh, and of course there's uh, a whole bunch of interestingly uh, American culture like Dem Pfeff, uh like uh, Lawrence Seagrave, like uh, John Smith or Bobby Kersey. Well, those four dominated American sprints as uh, as uh, coaches. Their athletes uh, have been dominating at least American sprints for the for the last uh, thirty years. <clears throat> yes, yes. Well, you've just rattled off the royalty of track and field for the last um, <laughs> some great contributions there. Um, yeah. So some of the, some of the, the advice, like technology, has been a bit of a blessing for us, and at the same time, technology has been a bit distracting. I think um, yeah. uh, pe people have learned how to measure everything, but interpret yeah. nothing. That's a different story. Um, 
some of the toys that you do like to play with, what are they? Sorry, some of the? Some of the, the um, technology-based devices that you, you, you use on a regular basis or you like to play with. I saw you use some of them in Virginia. You spent some time um, in Virginia. Yeah. The, uh, portable EMG or whatever you were using. Tell, tell us about some of your favorite toys. Yeah, well, one of the, I was the first buyer, I didn't know that at the time, of the Omega Wave system in, in the year 2000 already. I always used the jump platform, Moscow, to measure uh, uh, the whole battery of spotting counter mover jump uh, with or without arms, rings, optimal drop jump, reactivity jumps, 15, 30, and 60 seconds jumps. It's a whole battery to see all the explosive neuromuscular qualities and uh, have an estimation of the muscle fiber type as well. So the jump platform I use, the Omega Wave I use on the on the, still on a regular base. Now I play around with this EMG short, so you can measure uh, the quads, the hamstrings and the glutes, left and right, uh, real time, so you can see which muscles are working, how hard they're working, and um, even if they are working, and um, uh, how they are working in time, so the timing of the, of the firing of the muscles, which is very educational, uh, because you can see left and right differences, you can see the, the balance between the hamstrings and the quads, or the relationship between the hamstrings and the glutes. Um, and for me as a learning tool, I, I don't use those tools as a monitoring or testing tool on a daily basis, I use it mainly as a learning and educational tool. Yeah, good, because good. Sorry? Yeah? Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was, you had me rolling around on the ground with laughter um, when you when you had the device on um, the so-called glute ham raise, and you said, "Oh, there's no glute activity." Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's 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 educational, I think, because a lot of our training systems are based on, um, well, number one, placebo, and number two, on assumptions that, that if I do this exercise, it's good for this and this muscles. Now you put on the these shorts, and you see those muscles don't do anything. Well, that's educational because then they have been choosing the wrong exercise or using the wrong exercises for many years to, to, to activate those muscle groups so they'll make those muscles stronger. Well, they can get stronger if they don't work. <laughs> yes, yes. That's I, I think it's been a positive trend that the glutes have been getting recognition uh, you know, instead of just exclusively on quadricep. But at the same time, I think the Americans in particular, and not, not necessarily in sport, but in the fitness industry, have overreacted on the on the role of the gluteals and um, come up with 101 ways to do clear gluteals and and, and and the role of the gluteals in say pelvic stability um, it's there but you know what is that relative to the role of the abdominals I mean we're not even talking about the abdominals anymore we're just talking about you know glute this and glute that and glute this and glute that and <clears> I don't <throat> think they're actually solving any problems. No, it, it, it's it's typical. It's it's it, it's it's always more simple to focus on one little muscle group or one little trick or one little uh, than than trying to oversee the whole picture. It's it's uh, easier to to let me say uh, uh, conduct a one man orchestra than a hundred man orchestra. So you have to look at all the factors. But most people wanted to be specialists. They want a specialist in a in a in a in a field. You call the expert or the specialist in whatever. Uh, um, micro on whatever micro level there is, and make a name for themselves and be the specialist to to set themselves apart from the rest. While the real success is, of course, not in being a specialist in the glutes or a specialist in the, in, in the abdominals or whatever. There is, it comes from the field of fitness. The real success is, of course, uh, having this uh, holistic overview over everything. Know what's important, what is not for this athlete and this sport. So I'm, I call myself never never call myself an expert or a specialist. I'm definitely not. I'm I'm a, I'm a pure generalist, 
looking at what is needed for the sport and looking at my athlete, looking at all these factors and then find out the best way to from uh, to, to get from A to B. And uh, that's what I'm not sure generally. I think that's by the end where success is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I know from, um, you know, if, if you and I just poked around in our sports and, you know, so I've got a fairly diverse sport involvement, but if we just poked around our sports, Olympic level, Commonwealth Games, World Championships, World Cups, etc., we wouldn't necessarily, no one would necessarily know who we were. So at some point in time, we probably both benefited from having some exposure to the American yeah. fitness industry machine. So I, I know, um, you know, my involvement with a certain internet internet strength or bodybuilding magazine was was very helpful. But you know, when they approached me and they said you're going to get, you know, you, you know, a lot of people will, will get to know you out. I, I didn't buy your books. Well, I didn't care because I, I only cared about the scoreboard. But I have learned yeah. since the power of the, the you know, the, that exposure. And I'm sure you've also seen the power of getting some exposure in the American um, bodybuilding and, and fitness industry. So how's that, you know, how's that unfolded for you? Um, well, like I said, uh, from the from the very beginning, I didn't, I'm, I'm, I wasn't interested in, in sports at most. I preferred to read a book uh, when I was young uh, than, than to go out and get myself tired and dirty uh, uh, playing outside. And um, um, I don't, I don't really, really, really care about it about my popularity because as many people were much more popular than I am but if I listen to them or read their works I can only laugh because they never coached anyone uh, anyone of substance and they never well they use, always use this disguising term I worked with well when I look outside of my window now I see a, a marathon runner and I say hey come on raise your mm -hmm. arms then I worked with this marathon and it didn't I? So the, the term work with is very, confu very confusing. It doesn't tell you anything. Do very I work one hour a year or on a daily basis, three hours a, a, a day on a year, for 10 years on the track with one athlete. That's for me, that's working with the coaching. And coaching is not one hour or giving some half-hearted advice to, uh, to somebody. So there's people who are much more popular who work with basically everybody who performed well with all the Olympic medalists. You will see the discrepancy if you take all the Olympic medals and all the people who are very, very good and the amount of coaches that work with them. You see, there's a strange overlap there. Yes. So how many, I think that Usain Bolt has at least 25 coaches who worked with Usain Bolt at some point of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like success has many fathers and, and, and failure has, has uh, very few uh, mothers. Uh, people always say, to take credit in my case uh, people always uh, say well I used to be the coach of this and this and people think did he ever coach uh, this athlete so well not for the last 12 years because we have been together uh, every day so I never saw him I don't even know who he is but he claims to be and the innocent bystander or the people in the in the in the in the, in the audience don't don't really know what is it I can only laugh at that and and, and the same thing uh, 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 still applies I don't really care about being popular or, or being marketed. And the people that want to run fast or perform well, well, they know where to find me. That's not, that's not a problem. I like to do things a little bit on the background and not being on main stage. And in the end, you start to believe your own qualities. Uh, this is the problem with uh, many coaches. Uh, they, they start to go overboard and start to believe their own concepts. First, you try something and hey, well, this works. Hey, this is good. This works. Then it works so well. That's basically the only thing you do. You get confirmation by the improvement of your of your. Input. 
and uh, this is the only thing that works. And then in the end said, well, it's the only thing that works and everybody else is an idiot. <laughs> so you get so much in love with your own concepts and ideas that you're not open-minded anymore and you fall in love with yourself. And then you're on stage and, and giving a presentation uh, uh, somewhere. And then, well, you have to sell yourself, you know, you have to firm believe that you want to sell books or get more uh, requests for, uh, for presentations. Um, and that's something that I don't really, uh, uh, there's, uh, not to say it, it, it's bad, absolutely. It, it's, it's a good way to, to educate coaches as well for a, a part, but it's not the thing that I pursue. I'm not, not promoting or selling anything on or in this way. I make myself bigger than I am. I have a limited experience, a good experience. There's definitely something to learn. Everything I say is based on data and numbers results. I recorded everything, I wrote everything down. So you can always, it's not some empty thing. But I don't focus on the groups or focus on the cars or the hams. No, no, no. I, I look whatever is important. That's why it's difficult, more difficult to follow me than to follow the guru because the guru always has the answers. I only have questions. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. I like I like that one. It's, uh, that, that sounds very familiar. So yeah. some of the, the people like um, Charlie, you got to spend a fair bit of time as we both have um, dialoguing with Charlie. It's 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 always interesting to me that some of the greatest minds I've met in sports training have little yeah. to no formal background in sports science. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sports science, look at the, there's a limited uh, because we always say bridging the gap. That's an old word from the 1970s and 80s, bridging the gap between theory and practice, between sports science and, 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 and the and sports scientists and the coach. Well, this will never work because simply the background and the intentions and, uh, and the interest uh, is completely different. Uh, sports science always look geared towards the average. So if you find a new training system or you test something, that means take a group of 20, yes, 20 what? 20 elite athletes? There aren't 20 elite athletes uh, in, in, in any field, if you want to put it really uh, sharply. And there are 20 of those athletes, so you can look at the, at the numbers. And then you try something, drop jumps with uh, weights. And you see the average is, well, two inches or five centimeters. But what you forget is that some people will improve four inches and some people will end up being injured or, 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 or they will decrease their performance or increase. So science always get toward the average, and I never work with the average athletes. Average results from science are good for average coaches and average athletes for the genetic freaks that I work with. So many things that I learned from science, also from the East German and the Russians. When I, I was this young and ambitious coach, and I thought, well, now I know everything about the training system, Mondatschuk, Vekhoshansky, Zatsiorsky, Matveyev, I knew everything. And then I... I I'm in touch with one of my first international athletes, uh, uh, Nelly Kuhlman, and everything that, that I learned failed on her. It didn't work mm. because she was a genetic freak, and everything I learned seems to be uh, seemed to fail. Then a couple of years, but I learned a lot. I preferred to learn from my mistakes, only make them once, and I prefer even to make to learn from the mistake that other people uh, mistakes yes. that other people make. Yes, absolutely. And I came in touch with Manny and then I thought, well armed with my background and again my education and armed with the experiences uh, with uh, with nelly well i can coach you but everything that worked for nelly did not work for maline and everything that worked for maline would not work for nelly so then that really was an eye-opener to see that every athlete is different has different 
limitations and and and, and different uh, uh, needs and different qualities that need to be need to be addressed. Completely different sometimes in this case. Well, that's, so it, that's it, there's two points, two points I want to touch on. Hank, you you talk about bridging the gap, and that that term is still being thrown around in America. And, and yeah. I was wondering whether I was the only one that was critical of it because I just didn't see how that works. But you know, we probably don't need to to bash them anymore on that. But I that that's been a concern for me as far as young people believing that that, that, that bridging the gap is the answer. I get. Uh, as you would get, I get young, young um, inverted commas coaches who are looking to go and do their PhDs, etc., or their master's degrees, asking me for guidance in research, in the hope yeah. that they're going to improve performance in sport. And uh, I say, listen, I don't know how to tell you the truth. Like, you know, like we don't know each other well enough for me to tell you that um, you're probably not going to be making any breakthroughs that are going to change the, what happens in elite sport because elite sport training isn't based on a collection of studies. Exactly. Exactly, it's a different world. This 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 bridge is 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 a, is an illusion. There there is there is basically no bridge. We can learn from each other. We can respect each other. Learn something from each other. But I don't see that sports science made a big uh, contribution to any sports performance. Believe me, Usain Bolt doesn't run fast because his coach knows so much about sports science, or he's a sports scientist. That's just not true. And, and I think the common sense and, and your own personality are much more important than any book that you read. If you if you have common sense, I don't need any technology. I can throw away all my uh, all of my library, and I still can make athletes. Only thing I need, of course, is is a stopper. But sometimes even I don't need a stopper to make athletes yes. Uh, yes. good. Yeah. So the other point that you raised was, was individualization, and this is something that's intrigued me for many decades because. I worked out, as you did pretty early on, that we need to respect the individual and we need to work out what's going to work with individuals. Yes, yes. But, and the word was mentioned in, in, in literature in America back in the um, probably the 80s. But, and, and again, this is just my perspective, I haven't seen any advancement in the teaching of individualization. So I don't see any advancement in the last 30, 40 years in, the, in, 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 in mainstream um, sports science education in, in no. teaching people how to interpret the optimal training method for an individual. I, I just feel that the word individualization is being, um, it's been, it's been used, but it's not. No one actually does anything about it. So what, what's, what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely spot on, uh, you know, absolutely spot on. It's always we're not, we're not coaching averages. Uh, we're not, I'm not looking for the average athlete that, that I coach in a group of ten. I'm looking for ten individuals, which is a hard task, and that's why I can only coach. Uh, three, four, five athletes uh, at a time, because I, I look at the individual. In education, strange enough, in other fields, this, this individualization starts, and they start to see the light. There's personalized nutrition, there's personal medicine, um, there's personal coaching, but there's no personal training. Yeah, there's personal training, but in the gym, not for elite athletes. And there's a very interesting book uh, written, it's called The End of Average. The end of average, and uh, you see that in, in in fields of education, the whole idea of looking at the individual instead of looking at the average person starts to dawn. But in the most individual sports there is, or, or where at the highest levels, where it's absolutely needed to look at the, the limitations and capability of the of of the person in 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 elite sports, it's not. It's still not. It's still not. We we treat the next athlete uh, like we treated the the the, uh, the one before. We even copy training from last year for this year, and for from we copy training programs from other coaches, from other athletes. You know, train like Usain Bolt. Well, you're always doomed to fail, and as you are Usain Bolt, you're doomed to fail. And you see this all the time, all the time, all the time. And and somehow 
I think it's the complexity uh, uh, that people don't want to buy. People look for an easy solution. Um, as a matter of fact, we coaches are kind of helping. I don't have a high esteem of my own uh, profession. Yesterday, I had a television broadcast and said, what's International Colleague Day? Oh, interesting. Do you have colleagues? And I don't have colleagues. I, I don't have colleagues. I, don't, I separate myself from, from my colleagues because I don't feel that, that, that what I'm doing is better, but it, it's just a, just a different point of view. I never copy uh, somebody else's program. I never, from the beginning, I never look at what somebody else uh, did exercises and say, okay, we have to do these exercises too because Usain Bolt did his exercise, so it will be good for my sprinters as well. I never did it. And most of them do. That's why I separate myself and, and don't consider myself a colleague of them. Uh, they can call themselves that's colleagues. That's fine. That's why you succeed, because I think that firewall is so critical and it, it sometimes. If we over associate, I think it's difficult to to disassociate then from the influence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that that's one of the main concepts. It's it's, it's looking at the individual. I'm a very very almost, I wouldn't call it rigid, but I'm a very strict individual. Uh, in people say, "What is your system?" I don't have a system. I, I simply look what is needed. Uh, there is no um, preset thought in my mind other than uh, how does this athlete, what are the weak points and strong points, what demands of competition, where are we very far away from that, where are we closer, what needs to be addressed, how much time does it cost me to, to address this, uh, could I spend my time somewhere else, prioritizing uh, uh, my, my, my training goals, uh, what is important, what is less important, look at what is relevant, look what is significant. And yes, technology and uh, modern science is often confusing because often you get uh, uh, young coaches um, uh, taking the wrong direction, and their main expression is, Hank, I read somewhere. I read <laughs> somewhere. Yes, absolutely. You hear that so often. And then, and yeah, I read it too. Oh, really? Yeah. And then I threw it away because I was a bunch of crap. They're not very critical. I mean, we're a generation yes. 1970s, let me say the hippies or the. the, the yes. They learn to be critical and they learn to be non-critical. Uh, they accept everything that is published on the internet or everything that anybody says. There's never a critical question. That's one of my problems. I, I want my even my athletes to be critical at me, to criticize me and to, to, to challenge me if I say something or, or give them some advice. Hey, but why is this? And why did you see, say this last year? You said this and now you change your mind or whatever. So I teach them to be critical at me, to keep me sharp and make them better. Absolutely. And even the concept of diff differing thoughts. I mean, you, you might train an athlete differently at any given time. I might train an athlete at any given time, but don't that, you know, that doesn't upset you and it doesn't upset me. And yet I find so many, so many of the people in, um, in the American influenced, uh, you know, fitness and industry, uh, they're very concerned if you, you know, if I say, listen, I don't use kettlebells. Like I, I get, uh, I get more hate mail than anything else, uh, than any other subject since I told the people that the, the aerobic base was a myth. Back uh, yeah. back in the eighties, you know, you know, it's a very um, it's a very emotional topic, but it really comes back to how dare someone think differently? Like, how how can we have that? Well, coaches live in a in a in a in a strange uh, world. Uh, most of the work that we do, and I can uh, me too, is is mainly cosmetic. We know how to sell ourselves really well to the outside world. Uh, when we win uh, or our athlete does well, it's all due to our beautiful laid out plan beforehand. And most of the time it's a bunch of crap. It's not 
uh, by coincidence. I never expected Mayathi to do this well. And um, I was just hoping for it and geared towards it towards it and, and trained it. But I didn't expect this well. And then they say, well, we saw this coming because he trained very well and uh, made myself bigger than I am. And that, that's kind of, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, um, intrinsic for, for coaches to do something uh, like that. Then we think we're very uh, innovative and very creative and basically we're very conservative and, and we're not independent because we copy somebody else's program. So all the things that we think of coaches or say about ourselves as coaches, basically we're not, believe me. Absolutely. So another point that, that I wanted to touch upon and overlaps with some of the things we've talked about so far. outside of your own athletes are you have you seen any changes in injury incidence trends yeah. across the board in sport in the world outside of your own athletes um, yeah oh yeah quite quite a few as a matter of fact so if you look at the soccer match uh, 40 years ago then you look at as you you want to speed it up because you're thinking you are looking at a slow motion well, many sports only became uh, uh, more dynamic. It means more power output and maybe faster. And uh, as a result, uh, probably of a little bit more of uh, strength training as well. But going faster is not everybody's uh, cup of uh, of uh, tea. I, I mean, you you cannot make a, a donkey run fast, or you cannot make a Volkswagen uh, uh, enter the the uh, uh, how do you call it uh, the Formula One race. And people try it, so you you build a a bigger and heavier and stronger Volkswagen, but it's still a Volkswagen. It's not a Ferrari or a Mercedes. It's still not. So what you see a lot of injuries, at least in soccer, is of course that all of a sudden in the 1970s, 80s, it was mainly knee problems, meniscal yeah. problems, and, and knee problems. And now you see a tremendous shift to 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 hamstrings. Just uh, almost not an evolution. It's almost a revolution within the last 10 years, which is a a short time frame in 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 uh, in, in uh, global sport, you see a tremendous shift in 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 the hamstring problems problems all of a sudden. Uh, this is the main problem in 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 soccer at least, and in many sports you see these uh, problems uh, happening. The hamstring problem is the injuries. Look at the percentage of injuries. The hamstring now is dominant, and 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 two years ago, uh, well. It was mainly the problem of the of the elite sprinter with pull the hamstring at 80 meters. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's it's a fairly significant shift uh, the way I'm seeing. It. And the interesting thing for me is that if the if the hypothesis of the cause is off track, then nothing's yeah. going to change. In fact, it could only get worse. Is what I'm predicting. Oh yeah, but don't forget that in many sports, uh, people just and this is one of my uh, sort of my one of my almost my hobbies or uh, no, not, not an obsession. Uh, my obsession, uh, I hope it's nobody else's. You train as much as necessary, not as much as possible. So 99% of our injuries are overload injuries, not underload injuries. Yes. So that means that most of the time we're, we're working very hard to overload our athletes. Now an overload injury, overtraining, that takes a couple of months before it, uh, it will recover. An undertraining, uh, an undertraining uh, situation that's solved in a week. <laughs> so that's much, much easier. And look at the rate of injury. It's just uh, shocking to see. We, we talk a lot of in, in sports or in elite sports or in sports probably a lot of talk about doping. But the worst thing for your health is having a bad coach uh, giving you the wrong exercises. And then you end up at the surgery table. How, 
how healthy is that? Is that? Yeah, it's a, it, I, I, that's something that disappoints me in elite sport, Hank. That that the the impact of surgery on an athlete's future performance is just not appreciated. It's it's basically the kiss of death for many athletes as far as increased or, or optimizing in their athletic potential. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's not a car where you, you well, you, you, you have a, a flat tire and you put on a new tire and everything is running just as smooth. There's, there's tremendous, tremendous, let uh, me say, anatomical and, and biomechanical implications of surgery. Number one, the athlete who wants to go surgery, he can't compete. Obviously, he's on the table already competing. Number two, he can train. Well, your coach makes a program which he thinks is the best program there is for you in the moment. Well, now you cannot do this because you got an injury, so you're dealing with a second best or maybe even third best program because you're limited in the exercise you can do. Number three, you compete, and um, well, there's still the physical uh, uh, scars of this uh, uh, of the surgery, which is yes. uh, scar tissue inside or, or, or whatever. Uh, Adhesions, uh, different uh, anatomical uh, uh, or, or changes, changes in in your neurology and innervation of the muscles, which changes too because you cut uh, through uh, nerves as well. <clears throat> and then, what's probably uh, like you said, underappreciated or underestimated is the mental effect of uh, of, uh, of uh, surgery or uh, injuries because you're self-confident down because you haven't been doing the training that you should do. And you're always afraid that if it's a serious injury, that it will come back. Struggling with the hamstring injuries, even if there's no scar tissue in the in the hamstring anymore, there's scar tissue in the brain. So they're always shaking their hamstring, like, okay, I hope this will not um, doesn't help your performance for sure. There's all many many reasons why you should never get injured and never get uh, get, uh, get surgery. Uh, but strange enough, um, I always say to my athletes, it doesn't really matter. They're training. What people think is mild today. How can they get fast in this kind of with this kind of training? You know, it's so little. It's so few exercises. Uh, well, they improve, don't they? <laughs> so mm -hmm. as long as you improve with little training, I'm you call it can call it minimalist, but that's not the right term. I think I do as, uh, as much as necessary to uh, as necessary to improve. Yeah, not as much as, as I can. They can always train more. Yes. The, the the concept of optimal training is often far less than what the, the massing and, and, and I think actually most developmental athletes careers are shot destroyed because the people who are coaching them have a, a, a misguided perception about optimal training volume optimal training load yeah. and the young athletes never really become a great uh, senior athlete because they get wrecked on the misconception of their early stage coaches absolutely absolutely for me optimal training is if you have the the right training means 100% based on a daily change of, uh, of adaptability. So one day you can handle more than another day. So if you can handle more, do whatever is necessary, 100% no more. And then the next day you can only do 80% because you didn't sleep very well, you're tired from yesterday's training, you had an exam at the uh, at, school, uh, at, uh, so your brain isn't really into it, or you're fighting with your, 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 your parents or your colleagues or whatever, then you have to adjust the training load to uh, according to that and most people don't they have a set training program that doesn't change no matter what and there's no need for monitoring you do all the testing and the testing but they still maintain the plan as as it as, as it is on paper which is strange if you test and, and monitor your athlete and you see some changes 
they should choose the transit training plan accordingly, and they don't. They do it. They do it anyway. So then there's no need for testing or monitoring after if you don't change anything according to the monitoring process. Well, I think one of the greatest um, uh, fallbacks that uh, used in some sport is that we can always get another body to replace it if we wreck this body. And I, I saw that attitude so many times in, in many different sports, especially uh, from countries where there are a lot of athletes participating yeah. in the sport. Like, you know, without wanting to single out any single country, um, Austrian ski coaches were pretty um, – uh, blase about whether they wrecked because uh, there'd be some more lining up. An East German rowing coach would be little concerned because there'd be more backing up. But I don't know what it is for you, but for me and some of the countries I've worked in, we didn't have many um, world champions uh, in, in, the, in the cupboard and we weren't going to wreck them. You know, if you wreck them, there's no one else. Absolutely. Look at Holland. We have 17 million people uh, living here. And sports, no matter how we think about sports, is popular. It's, it's really popular by reading the paper and watching soccer. But well, I, I'm already happy with every warm body that has two healthy legs that enters the track. I don't have a hundred people uh, lining up. So if I, I if I destroy my athlete, I have to wait a long time before I find another one. And the higher the level is the, the, of the athlete, well, it takes much longer before I find another potential world champion or world record holder. So I have to be very careful. That's, of course, the cultural background of my thinking about um, of my thinking about. Uh, Optimizing of uh, training, train as much as necessary, not as much as possible, because I was forced to do that. Besides that, I, I didn't have any support from anyone, so I was a one-man band. I was not only the coach; I was a psychologist because we couldn't afford another psychologist. I was also the nutritionist because we couldn't afford. It. I was a physical therapist. I was also the, the massage therapist because we just couldn't have the biomechanics expert because we couldn't afford one. <laughs> so that's why I learned, that's why the holistic idea came from. And that's where the, where the idea comes from, uh, from Dutch Kuyatis, and that's other coaches destroy them. Uh, there's many examples nowadays in some coaching on athletes that they say, hey, uh, that's a good athlete. Uh, okay, good. And next year, they're nowhere to be found. They're already on the surgery table or in the rehab room to, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to come back and trying to recover. Because they're training just very brutal training systems or uh, people just don't care. So hey, there's another there's another trend that I just wanted to touch upon, and that's the talent identification trend. And it's not a not a new trend, but it's certainly not going away. In fact, it might be gaining momentum. And and it's it's based on what I see as potentially a fairly narrow perspective of um you know, and I don't want to prejudice anything you might have input in this, but the athletes that I have turn out that you know that they're great, um, they don't always fit that mold. What do you think? Sorry, they don't always. They don't always fit the, the mold. Like, you know, talent identification, they say, okay, you've got to be this height, you know, you've got to have this wingspan, you've got to have, you know, this ratio, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Are, that. Sports scientists and statistics is, is again the law of the, uh, of the average. I mean, I'm uh, six foot six. And when I was a, 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 a center, my coach had a national, the regional record. He ran 10 points. And I was a high jumper. And he said, Hank, what do you really want? Your, high, your high, uh, mind isn't to high gym. He said, I want to run in the media. He said, well, forget about it. I said, so why do you say that? I, said, I know you're not going to go very far in the sprints because you're too tall. The by the time you get a full speed, the race is over. So how do you know? He said, well, I ran the regional record. Well, just to punish him, I broke his regional record. He's still having sleepless night about that. I ran 10.5 and broke his record with my 6.6 .6 and getting, a, uh, getting a to full speed uh, after 90 meters. 
there you go. Well, now you say Bolt is a is a six foot six, and nobody complains about being too tall for sprinting, exactly. isn't it? Exactly. One of my athletes, uh, uh, a I spoke to these German coaches. We don't know if you're lucky or not with uh, Nelly, but she would never have it the the Kinder and Jugendsportschule or our our system because she's too short. Well, yes. She blew away all the German sprinters, which were maybe uh, ten or twenty centimeters uh, taller, but she all blew them away. So I always uh, appreciate human differences, and and uh, sometimes uh, being being different or not being good enough for a system is a great incentive, uh, motivational to 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 show them something that you are well, even if you are half a centimeter shorter than 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 what is necessary than than the, than the scale tells you. So, and, and I want to get that message across to to any athletes and coaches listening in because. I, I, I got to tell you, I personally, Frank, uh, hang on, I don't know what mm. makes athlete great other than, for the most part, that burning desire to be the best in the world. And, and I like, how do you measure that? How do you yeah. reproduce? Something happened in their life that left them with that burning desire. Well, everybody tells you so. Everybody wants to be Olympic champion. I had a guy who said, "I want to, Hank, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be coached by you. I want to go to the Olympics. Okay, let's see what you have." Show up at the stadium at four o'clock. At 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 four thirty, he was still wasn't there. Then they don't need him anymore. It's very simple. So many people want to be Olympic champion by mouth, but when you look at their actions, their behavior, nothing shows that they have the the burning desire. Which means you have to do things that you don't like, and you have to do things alone that you do like, like going uh, out and party uh, every night. If you want to be Olympic champion, you have to stall that for a couple of <laughs> years, probably, and wait after that. So it's, it's basically based on, uh, well, behavioral observation. How do they behave? What do they think? Now I have now uh, a new athlete, which is by, no, not by coincidence, but it's the daughter of Nellie Coleman. And Nellie had this burning desire, believe me. There was no, when she said, Hank, don't worry, I'm going to win this one, even in the face of the East Germans, and the best East Germans, like Marlies Geur or Silke Gladys, but and don't worry, I'm going to win this one. There was every cell in her body was convinced that she would. There was not a trace, not a molecule, not a, not a, not a neutron of doubt in her in her system. Now I'm coaching her daughter, and uh, we go to Switzerland to compete, uh, to train indoors a little bit and to compete. And I see the the lineup, and I see her time. She just started uh, training with me. She just started training and training with me a year ago. And then one of her first competitions. Uh, See the line there. Whoa. It's going to be a heavy one. There's 120 girls here, and um, look at the times these girls run, and look at her, her time. And uh, said, well, to prepare a little bit, I say, well, it's going to be a tough one to be in the finals. And she looks at me and said, uh, "Sorry, if you think that I'm coming here to to go back empty-handed, you're wrong." Uh, really serious. And I thought, oh shit. And of course, she pulls it off and runs a personal best and gets into the top three and being number 57 on the list or something. So she beat everybody and then ending up uh, number three. Well, that's this burning desire uh, expressed in, 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 in behavior, also in competition behavior. Because, well, everybody who, who enters the, the track or the, or, or the field wants to be really, really, really good. But what separates the really good ones is that they follow up in their in their brain on 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 their desire. Many people have this desire, but when you push a little bit harder, then the whole thing uh, deflates. You know, the whole thing goes out empty. <laughs> Absolutely. 
there's no way really way to test it yet and maybe that's good too so there's always be a surprise and then also coming back on the on the uh, the, the the topic uh, before when i think, come to think about it uh, the athletes i always had the kind of outliers which were the troublemakers and always being discarded by my colleagues so for nelly yes. my colleague said uh, she's too short, too fat, too lazy, and she's stupid. You won't do right. anything. Yeah, Four right. years later, she broke the world record. Yeah. So she did just start. Really happy, was too old. Troy Douglas uh, was too old already. Oh, don't waste your time with this. You won't go anywhere. Uh, Mary Pierce, the tennis player. Oh, that's a difficult. That's a, a hard case. Not case. You won't do anything. And all the time, we proved them wrong. We proved them wrong. Uh, not to prove them wrong. You, <laughs> you have no sense in doing that, but. In the end, when you look at it, we proved them wrong. They did very, very well uh, because in the end, they, they were the winners. They were, uh, and and winners are sometimes difficult people, difficult to deal with. That's why they win. They're having internal conflicts. They're having conflicts uh, with the world. And many coaches think about the harmony model. You think about coaching about being in balance and being in flow and everything. Well, I found the opposite. I think that most coaches, uh, most uh, athletes, have a kind of the burning desire comes from a uh, uh, deep wish to be loved, to be recognized, to to be respected, to to be seen even, and 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 uh, which is not a, as a positive desire as a positive, but more uh, um, the compensation for a deficiency or for something they're missing in their lives. Yes. But that's my personal experience, at least with elite athletes. Most of them, than what I coach, I mean. Almost all of them come from broken families. Well, one of the parents isn't there anymore. They divorced or they ran away or whatever happened. So that always is 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 not really well. It has its impact on your on your feeling and your thinking already. Yes. So that's something to consider as well. Well, great insights, Hank. Uh, hopefully, in the last uh, time we've been chatting, created or shared some some wisdom for um, coaches coming through. And as I said, from the outset, I have uh, concern for where they're going to learn from. And, you know, in, back in our time, we were hungry um, to find it. And I don't know about out of Holland, but out in Australia, it was pretty hard work getting the East German material before the, um, yeah. the, the wall came down in 89. So, you know, if we got anything out of East Germany, we were pretty happy. And we treasured yeah. that book and we read it from front to back. and. You know, we compared the Russian literature to the East German literature and, you know, they were our two main influences. And, and now, um, you know, I'm not saying that they were necessarily better than, than others, but they certainly were more systemized. They had a lot more um, uh, money invested in their programs. There was a lot more reward invested in what they were doing. Uh, you know, they, there was a, a very strong system in place, especially the East Germans. I was a big fan of the German precision, you know, the excellence approach by German. Um, but that's just not there anymore. You know, we, 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 we've, we've, we've broken the borders, but it mm -hmm. certainly hasn't um, translated for me in, in optimising the influence to, our, to the next generation of coaches. So hopefully, you know, what, what you leave from an artefact perspective and your experiences can shed some light uh, on future generation coaches. Um, it's more not... Well, first you should uh, study... And then you study, then you study more. Learn from uh, not only by books or for sure not by the internet. It's a it's a big garbage can of information where everybody can write, every fool can write whatever they want. So it's not really your life. There's no filter on the internet. What is good and what is bad. 
So before you write a book like you did, you have to think what you're writing. If you're writing crap, then nobody will buy the book and the, the publisher will for sure not publish it. So mm -hmm. you have to think about it. But when you have a blog or when you have a, a, a Facebook, you can write whatever you want. Any brain fart you can publish and people sometimes believe it. You, you can test it by writing something completely wrong about training and people will accept it and will, and will start doing it. Like the thrust, but it's another story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so, it's a, it's a, be, be, uh, become more critical about uh, what you ask yourself the right question. It's not in the answer. It's in the, 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 the real value is in the, in the question that you ask yourself uh, as a coach. And experience and, and wisdom, like we value as being a little bit older coaches, is, is something uh, very, very valuable. Because what I tell you is not something that you can learn in a, in a book or from the internet in a million years. It's something condensed uh, uh, information from 40 years of experience, from, from, from failure and success, from, from falling down and getting up again, and trial and error. Well, if yes. you can learn that in one hour or in, in one day, of course, that's better than uh, than uh, uh, sitting in the internet and and, and look, uh, Google and, and try to find something uh, uh, new that somebody else wrote who also doesn't have a clue about uh, training. So this is my uh, idea. The value, and, um, yeah. The value for me of sport, Hank, is that you know in the in fitness we can say uh, you know I I help them lose body fat. You know there are 101 ways, but when we say over the decades, the training methods uh, that that I've I've tested and, and learned from have helped athletes legitimately get on the podium in a sport where there is only one, uh, you know, like there is no breakaway organisation. If you want to be, if you want to say you're the best paddler in the world, you go to the Olympics and stand on the podium. So I, I like uh, sport uh, from that perspective. I think it is the greatest test of coaching, the greatest uh, feedback of coaching. Um, that we have available, and so it's as you said, if you're looking for influences, if you're looking for guidance, uh, get yeah. away from the internet and start looking at you know the, the your coaches like yourself and Charlie, or the late Charlie Francis, who who, who you know, showed um, what they could do through you know how they could influence uh, results for the podium. Um, yeah. I, I've enjoyed uh, the chat. I've got a, in seven weeks' time. I've got to speak to the National Hockey League uh, conference. And my topic is a great topic. It's about the evolution of the of the coach, and I'm very happy to be given the opportunity to speak on such a an abstract topic because it's not just about sets and reps. And so I'm looking forward to it. And, and I'm ref I've been reflecting on it for some time. And conversations like this help me um, clarify, you know, what I'm going to say in that short time I have to influence that next generation of coaches. And actually, I'm sharing the the stage with um, our mutual colleague Dan Vaff. So um, we'll probably get okay. to to have a chat um, about some of the things that are near and dear to your heart in terms of track and field and speed. Uh, I think it's um, yeah, that, that's that's a good opportunity to 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 uh, to have an overall view instead of uh, giving you the magic exercise. Every coach in the end, the only thing most of them want to know what is the what is your favorite exercise. I have no favorite exercise, so. It's good that that, that uh, our even if we come from a different culture and from the other side of the planet, that uh, that at least uh, the the majority of our ideas are along the same lines as far as training and performance are concerned. It's interesting. Uh, that, well, yeah, that is that is quite ironic because uh, I, I started my my uh, professional education in 1980, and by what you said, 1981, you had your first coaching um, first coaching role there. So we we pretty much hit the hit the ground around about the same era and and very similar. 
uh, influences as far as um, the things we were reading and the coaches we were learning from. Yeah. Yeah, so we 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 we, we travel different roads uh, the last uh, forty years, but we end up at the same uh, at the same city basically, you know, and uh, at the, at the same time. So that that's kind of uh, <laughs> and it's always good for me to listen to to enlightened people, uh, open-minded, who have the experience and also the patient and the wisdom to to see training in in the perspectives like I see it uh, too. Uh, I also like to talk to young hotshots uh, who think they know what all the ambitious and I, 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 I love that but once in a while it's good to talk to somebody who has the, 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 the maturity and, and also has, has the experience and, and, uh, and uh, the results to prove that, that there might be a, a general common pathway to, uh, to success. Uh, different athletes, different sports but there are some things, uh, I wouldn't call it laws, but rules that you have to obey. And, those rules are yes. uh, kind of uh, well lost or forgotten in the last uh, 20 years. Yeah, but it was great to chat to you, uh, Ian, as well. And I also like uh, when you've been around the the the, the block, so to speak, and um, you know we share that attitude of I'm just here to help the athlete, and when the competition is done, I just want to walk away. I don't don't need to be known for for that that medal. I just want to walk away and. In, you know, enjoy some time to myself. You know, it's um, I like working with uh, meeting people who who aren't, aren't tripping over their ego, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been so a pleasure. Yeah, me too. And uh, well, if you have uh, time and if you feel uh, that we should uh, do this uh, once again, uh, then uh, then uh, then there's no problem from my side. I always uh, for you, I always uh, make time and uh, and the effort uh, with my computer to, <laughs> to make everything work, the sound and everything. So um, it was my pleasure, uh, Ian, and it was my pleasure also to meet you. Uh, 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 a couple of weeks ago in Ashanti, you see the man in real life and. Uh, know where your good name comes from that's it well i appreciate that and you also got to see me do a little bit of coaching work and i got to see you do some coaching work so that was good yeah exactly exactly yeah and i've got a few things in the mail he heading your way as we speak so you know they're just some 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 little insights uh, in text but uh, I, I i can remember when i compiled a very in-depth study of the stretch shortening cycle in the late 80s, early 90s, and your references were in part of that reference list. And that, that okay. article series was first published in the Canadian Journal Sports. I don't know if yeah. it's still functioning now, but they were published a three-part three -part article series, a uh, very in-depth review of the stretch shortening cycle in Bosco and yourself and, and, and others who had contributed to the understanding of that um, figured yeah. prominently and influenced my interpretation of stretch shortening cycle. So certainly appreciated um, everybody who's contributed to that because it's such an important part of sport. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Then uh, when my new book comes out in May, I think it comes out, I'll send you a copy of that uh, together with uh, the, uh, the other books. Uh, I didn't bring it to the US, but uh, I'll uh, make sure you get uh, the copies of that. Yeah. Appreciate that, Hank, and look forward to chatting again. and. And um, you know, there's, some of us have already departed. Like uh, Charlie has has left this planet, but hopefully we'll get to chat again. And some of the other um, people who share our uh, experiences, and uh, we'll, we'll perhaps pull together some some other resources and um, yeah. chew the chew the bones on some of those thoughts. If, if Charlie's up there and he's watching and listening, I'm pretty sure he has a grin on, uh, on his face. 
Well, I, I know. Charlie wouldn't miss a conversation about training. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Charlie would not miss an opportunity to discuss how to improve your performance. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you, Hank, for your okay. time today. Look You're welcome. Bye -bye. Putting this audio up on our, our website. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, yeah.